Right, good morning. We are looking at Jesus Feeds the 5,000. They say that familiarity breeds contempt. And in terms of this story, I'm sure it's one we've all heard of. I'm sure it's one that we've read several times. In fact, if you've read um, the Bible even just once through, you've read this story four times, or four different versions of it anyway, because it's in every single gospel. In fact, even if you've never picked up a Bible, you're probably familiar with it because of how it has um, entered, say, well, common parlance, I suppose. You know, you might have heard somebody say before, like, oh, didn't she put on a good spread? She was feeding the 5,000. Like, didn't she have so many, so many scotch eggs in a, in a picnic? I think, I think she was trying to feed the 5,000 there. Um, so, so what I thought was, well, um, two things. First of all, I think we need to come to scriptures like this that we're familiar with, with um, fresh minds, open hearts, so that God can speak to us, because we probably already know what's going to happen and the events. Um, second of all, is um, I think I want to give it a new name rather than Jesus Feeds 5000, and I've got two contenders here. I've got, first of all, the one with the bread and fish, um, so that's one option. It is, yeah, I went to the effort of finding the Friends font. Um, the second one is uh, Moses 2.0. Um, so we could go for, um, uh, for one of those, or maybe neither, because actually I think that both of these would be utterly wrong, and I'm going to explain to you why. Hmm? Okay, good. Um, so let's um, turn in, uh, in your Bibles, paper or digital, to John 6. And we're going to start reading from verse 5. We're going to read 5 to 14, um, although I will probably mention what happens in um, a verse or two beforehand, because I think that's important for context. So John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Um, he did the same with the fish. When they had had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And technically, I meant to stop there, but I think it's important we read the next verse as well, just for context. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So, a brief synopsis of the story and the key events. Jesus recognizes there's a crowd who need feeding, and he has a conversation with his disciples about that to gauge their, their actions and their response to it. 
Andrew brings along a boy with bread and fish, but points out that this isn't enough, fee- enough food for all these people. So Jesus commands everyone to sit down, and then he gives thanks for the food. It's distributed, and everyone has enough. In fact, there's plenty left over. Um, and then the people respond by saying, look, this is the prophet. But Jesus doesn't like what they say, and so he withdraws, and, and there's a reason for that. So the, the, I think there's many lessons that we can gain from this passage. And the um, first two, what I think I'll call surface-level um, lessons, and I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on these, but I will mention them briefly, is first of all, we could say um, whatever we give to Jesus, he can multiply it. So the boy um, surrenders his packed lunch to to Jesus, and um, and, and then there's, there's bread and fish for everyone, and, and then some more. And what we could say is, you know, whatever, we may think that we're inadequate in some way with our, with our time, with our resources, with our intellect, with our money, whatever, but Jesus can multiply it. And I think that's a good lesson. I will focus on that no more, but maybe that's something for you to go away and think about. Um, secondly, I think we can learn something from Andrew and Philip, because they don't know what to do in the situation. Andrew actually introduces the boy to Jesus. He brings the boy along and said, look, he's got some, he got some food. And I think that's important because Andrew brings the boy, but he doesn't know what to do. It's like he's got part of the solution, but he doesn't know what else to do with it. And I think that is a lesson for how we approach Jesus in prayer. And I think it's just the point that Andrew could have looked at the boy and thought, nah. But instead, he takes the boy to Jesus and he says, look, here he is. And so I think in short, whatever the situation, take it to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Probably something that Andrew didn't expect. He does something very creative. And that is, you know, part of our faith should be to expect that God's going to do something creative that maybe we didn't think of. But I'm done talking about that as well. Because I want to do a bit of a deep dive into um, what John is saying to us here. So um, I think we've already picked up from previous um, from previous messages, that John has a purpose in writing his book, and his purpose is outlined here, actually at the end of the book, where he says that he wants people who read it to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So he makes that absolutely clear. And so he leaves clues throughout the book of John as to his identity. Um, And this kind of thing is done quite commonly in film. Um, We sometimes call them references, or nods, or Easter eggs, And I'm no film critic, but I know that the Marvel franchise, for instance, um, has been noted for as paying excessive fan service through its references. One might call it laying on thick. And so by that standard, actually, John lays it on thick here. He pulls out all of the references and his fan service is extensive. If you were a first century student of the Jewish scriptures, for example, you would surely get the hint. And so let's look at these clues. Now, I think it's important that we discover these together rather than me just tell you. I mean, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what they are, but I think let's have a go. So turn over your worksheets. And um, on the left-hand side are some scriptures from John, which I have pulled out. And on the right-hand side are some, are some Old Testament scriptures Um, from somewhere in the Pentateuch, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And I'd like you to spend a couple of minutes on your tables or by yourself, it doesn't matter, um, matching them up 
Um, you can draw some lines on if you want. You can color code them. You can use a, a, a hieroglyph or numbering system. Uh, whatever one suits you um, best. Um, yeah, so have a think about that. Okay, good. Um, so the first one, and give yourself a little, uh, give yourself a little pat on the back if you got each of these. Um, so the first one, um, we, we can match up John six verse four to Exodus twelve seventeen. Um, John six four mentions that um, that this these events take place around about the Passover. Exodus twelve talks about the actual Passover, the original event anyway. And um, the key thing that John wants us to get out of this, the, the, sort of the reference or the Easter egg, is he wants us to think um, that Jesus is like Moses. And I stress the word like there. Okay, So um, indeed, if you compare this with verse 10, Jesus says to the people, he commands them to sit down. Um, it has been argued that this could be rendered as ask the people to recline. Okay, people often dined reclining in those ancient times. And which people reclined at a banquet? It was free people. So here's another hint that Jesus' food is freedom to these people. Because um, like Moses, you know, it's like Moses leading the people to freedom from Egypt. Okay, the next pairing, uh, well, I actually grouped uh, four of these. is So there's John 6, 5, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Linked with Numbers eleven thirteen, 13, which is a question that Moses asks to God, where am I to get meat to give all, this pe all these people? Um, and then the other pairing is John 6, 11. Then Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to all uh, to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Exodus 16.4, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. So Jesus feeding um, these people is like the manna from heaven, which um, came through Moses, and also the quail, which the birds, yes. Um, and so that was the meat that they ate. I've put those all together because they're all food-related. And the conclusion, I believe, that John wants us to draw here is, again, to make the connection between the two passages, um, between the two stories, rather, of Jesus feeding the people and Moses, um, Moses feeding uh, the people. So we're to think, you know, maybe there's a, there's a connection here is Jesus the prophet that Moses was talking about? Well, if that's so, then this actually confirms it. There is a bit more to say on this, actually, but I'll come back to that afterwards. So the other pairing uh, is John 6, 12, um, where you've had enough to eat, the food's gathered up, and then there's nothing is wasted. Um, hang on, no, I've skipped one. No, I haven't. Uh, it's not on my slides. Right, let me just read it then. So you've got John 6, 14. Um, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Deut Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command. So the conclusion here is that after seeing the sign, the people want to make Jesus their king, their leader, like Moses. We could think that here they've got the right idea because Jesus is the prophet that Moses um, prophesied about. But 6 verse 15 tells us that Jesus doesn't agree entirely with them. We'll come back to that. Yeah, so now is the time I want to talk about this. Um, they've got food left over. But contrast that. Now, this is where the parallel starts to 
break away slightly. And I think this is intentional for us to realize that, you know, that Jesus isn't just Moses 2.0, that there's more, there's more to him. And this is what John wants us to reveal about his identity. And that, you see, when the manna came, they couldn't keep it to the next day, apart from one exception. They couldn't keep it to the next day. It would get rotten. It would get maggots in it. But Jesus actually encourages the food to be gathered up and the leftovers to be kept. So with Moses, there was no leftover food, and there was a good reason for that. But with Jesus, there is plenty left over. There's actually abundance. And commentators say that this is a hint to make us think, well, actually, he's not just Moses 2.0. He's He's, he's something else, something new. And interestingly enough, um, there's 12 baskets left over, one for each tribe in Israel. In this case, the remainder of the bread symbolically um, feeds a restored Israel. So there's all the clues that um, John laid out for us. And I hope that you could see the, um, the parallels there. And we might expect that at the end of that passage, the crowd comes to the correct idea. Um, but they don't, and that is that is revealed in there. They speak of Jesus as the prophet, um, or the Messiah, or the King. This is, of course, a link to Deuteronomy um, 18, where Moses uh, promised that there would be another like him, and that the people should listen to him. So it's this the bit. It's this bit that they didn't really get right. It's the listening bit. They weren't really listening to Jesus or observing correctly who he was. So what was their intention? Maybe, it says they wanted to make him king, so what did they want to do? Maybe they wanted to stand him up as an alternative authority against Herod or Rome, which was, the, which was ruling that area at the time. But here's the thing, this is not the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to build, an alternative earthly kingdom. It is, of course, a heavenly kingdom. So this is why I believe that Jesus slips away because he's realized, you know, if this people make me king, they've actually got the completely wrong idea. This isn't what I came for. Maybe what the people wanted to do was to bring the sick to, to Jesus, which they had been doing already. Um, and, you know, that, I think that's a, that's a good thing. But there's more to his identity than just being a healer on tap. And that's why we need to study John. That's why it's important that we're doing this now so we can see how John, his, one of his best friends, wanted to um, reveal him. Now, there is a bit from a commentary I want to share with you, and it's this. Uh, from N.T. Wright in his book, John for Everyone. If Jesus is the great prophet promised so long ago, then he is the one to lead the people now. This is heavily ironic because, of course, John believes and wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is indeed the prophet like Moses. But the reaction of the crowds shows that they understood both of these things in what Jesus regards as quite an inadequate sense. The people had got it wrong. I mean, the people, what they would have given for a legend like Moses to come along, at that time, if you'd have asked anyone, first century um, First century Jew, who was the greatest Hebrew who ever lived? They probably would have said, it. well, it was Moses, of course. I mean, he led our ancestors out of Egypt after all. Uh, you know, they might be saying, oh, Lord, please send us another like Moses to save us again, to take us out from under the iron fist of Rome, just like you saved our ancestors from Egypt. But Jesus isn't Moses 2.0. He's much more. And John knows this. 
That's why he makes the contrasts that we've talked about. For example, in verse 5, Jesus asked the question, where are we going to buy bread? This is not to infer that Jesus is inadequate to the task because he says in the next sentence that he knew what he was, he was going to do. Jesus was, in fact, posing a riddle to, um, to Philip, the answer to which um, brings a likeness and a contrast with Moses. Because as we saw in Numbers eleven thirteen. Moses said, where am I to get meat to give all this people? So on the one hand, though Jesus and Moses both ask the question and end up feeding the people, what's different is Jesus knew what the answer to that question already was because he was the source of that food. But Moses didn't know. He didn't know the answer. When he asked God, where's the food going to come from? He didn't know what the answer was going to be. Um... When Jesus asks where the food will come from and Andrew brings along the boy, this is John building tension in the story. We may think that Jesus needs the boy to make the bread and uh, the fish. I think actually Jesus could have, could have done it without the boy. But, uh, but he chose to go down the route of the boy participating in the miracle because the miracle came through a partnership between the divine and, and, a, and a human part as well. Okay? The divine, Jesus, and the human, the boy. Um, and I think that this is intentional because this is another way that John is showing us that Jesus is, um, is God and human. He is the word made flesh, which he talks about at the very start of the book, that he chooses to use people in his miracle. So the people want Jesus to be king, and Jesus is a king. He's just not the king that they expected. He is the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, and he's the king from David's line, but he's also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what did the people want with him? See, I've got this theory that the people saw Jesus as a means to an end, and that's why Jesus slipped away at the time. You know, because he could have said to them, you're right, I am the prophet, I am your, I am... I am the king. I'm the king of the universe. But he didn't say that. He withdrew. Because he saw what was in the people's hearts. They wanted, they wanted, and this is quite right, I think, the people wanted an end to sickness. That's why they keep, kept bringing their sick relatives and friends to him to heal. Maybe, as I've already said, they wanted an end to the political rule, rule of Rome and Herod and the hated elite. And um, and so that, that was the role that they wanted Jesus to fulfill. But Jesus would have just been a means to an end in that equation. Maybe they also saw him as this, well, this big old vending machine that could give out bread and fish as and when. Um, and there's nothing wrong with desiring these things. You know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be free. There's nothing wrong with wanting food. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be healed. But Jesus knows the human heart, and he knows that we can be passionate about a person one minute, use them for all that they're worth, and then dump them when they're of no more use to us. That isn't a relationship. That's manipulation. And that's not how Jesus wants us to relate to him, and it's certainly not how he relates um, to us. He doesn't want us to think of him as um, our employee, our personal assistant, our personal trainer, our hired cleaner, or whatever. And we're not those things to him either. We are his children. 
First and foremost, Jesus wants us to desire him. Not for him to be a means to an end, but for him to be the end itself. Adam and Eve desired knowledge and life forevermore, but they went about it the wrong way. And I reckon they could have had those things had they chosen God's plan but, and, and, and sought relationship and intimacy with him, but, but they didn't. They chose, they chose their own means. Um, remember, Jesus taught us a prayer to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Our Father, the first two words, precede your kingdom come. Because the first words of the prayer are words of intimacy and relationship. And that isn't to say that bringing the kingdom is second fiddle to intimacy with God. I think true intimacy with God actually results in the kingdom coming. But if also if intimacy brings action, then that brings the kingdom as well. And then there'll be more followers of Jesus who will be intimate with him. And so what we get is a wonderful cycle of intimacy and kingdom. So that's what I think this passage is, re is, is about. Something we may not have seen before is that Jesus reveals something of himself and the people respond in the wrong way. And so he slips away to make a point that we are not to desire Jesus to be the means to an end, but he is the end and he is the one to be desired. So this passage that we've looked at today, it's a well-known uh, well one. Um, it's primarily about the identity of Jesus, and it wants us to identify him. John, John, in his authorship, wants us to identify Jesus correctly. This is the importance of studying his word generally so that we know who Jesus is. It's not always obvious, though. John includes many details, and none of them are accidental. But like many writers of the Bible, he's put together a puzzle before us. The Bible is a puzzle, and God wants us to solve it. Why? Because, well, it's meditation literature. Meditation literature requires that we think about it, that we mull it over, that we give it attention, that we give it effort. And that's how God wants us to relate to him, with attention, with effort, because isn't that a part of intimacy, of being close and giving someone attention and putting effort into it? So what is the conclusion then that we can draw from, um, from this? See, I don't think the passage really is about bread and fish. Um, I think there's a lot more to it than that. Similarly, I don't think it's fair to say that this, that, that to call it Moses 2.0. Because although, you know, you can have some versions of, I'll use Windows as an example. Um, you could have... Um, you could have, <coughs> say, I don't know, I'll go back to a bit retro. Windows 95 was better than Windows 3.1. <laughs> I was going to use Windows 10 and 11, but apparently Windows 11 isn't that great. But, you know, you can disagree with me if you like. They've, they're both called Windows, but one is clearly better than the other. But that's not a fair comparison um, with Jesus and Moses, because Jesus is far greater than Moses, even though there's, there's, a, there's a lightness there. So maybe I'll just settle for the traditional name that we have in our Bibles, which is the feeding of the 5,000. But we need to go past the name of this familiar passage um, and remember that this is the one 
that shows us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The first and the last, the Word made flesh, the reason for living, the one who really must be part of our lives, lives lived in intimacy, because if we relate to Jesus in that way, it will be so attractive to the world around us. Not empty religion, but personal relationship. And then if we make Jesus an intimate part of our lives, then others will surely know him too. Amen. Thank you.